So I went easy on you guys this week. Uh, if you notice, the scripture reading isn't as long as it was last week because we're reading the same thing. Usually I hold to the, uh, to the dictum that hard work builds good character, and you guys could have just sat through it and it would have been good for you anyways. But since we read it last week, uh, I shortened the scripture readings by quite some time, or quite some verses. And so we're continuing our study going through the book of Acts. So everybody should have an outline in their bulletin. If you don't, we can certainly get you one. And so we're going to be looking at a few main things, but um, I think it would be important to recap the main, or summarize, the whole book of Acts every time we read it, every time we go through a chapter. Because the book of Acts is laid out where he gives you the main message in the very first chapter. He gives you the same message at the end of, book, at the end of Luke, which overlaps Acts, at the end of Matthew, at the end of Mark, and at the end of John. He gives you the main message of what is going to be Acts. And Acts is the only historical book we have of the church, of church history, outside of what we see in the epistles. And I made the point last week, when you read the epistles, they have to fit into the mission and message that we find in Acts. And so um, I've been meditating a lot on, on Titus and how it talks about, uses the word or the phrase good works like seven or eight times in, in four or five chapters, and uh, especially how the book of Titus is written to Titus as an overseer, an elder on the island of Crete, and Paul identifies that Crete is nothing but a bunch of lazy beasts and gluttons and liars, and that's true. And he doesn't deny that, and that's the culture that they're uh, overtaking. And so that's similar to, to our culture. And so um, I just want to go over the book of Acts as the major theme, or a few of the major themes. <clears throat> if you were with us in our campus ministry, Rock Campus Fellowship, about three or four years ago, uh, we looked over... Um, and we looked through the whole book of Acts one week at a time where we looked at Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which Jesus says, Wait into Jerusalem until you receive power from on high, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, until the ends of the earth. And that's the major theme for the whole book of Acts. Just use that verse as kind of a locus classicus, uh, as a main verse, and, and look at every other verse and every other chapter throughout Acts to explain that. And as an outworking of that. And you could look at every epistle as the same, in the same theme. And so one thing that would be helpful, uh, just as a pragmatic uh, exhortation to everybody, as we're going through the book of Acts, I would encourage everybody to try to read the book of Acts every week as we come to it. There's no downfall in reading the same thing over and over and over. And... A lot of us have, uh, you know, at the beginning of the year, we put out a lot of yearly Bible reading plans, and we say, you know, stick to this, and you'll read the entire Bible in one year, you know, between 12 and 16 months, and by now, you're probably only like two months behind, if you're like me, and so you could catch up, and you could read the whole book of Acts uh, every week, if you set aside, a, you know, 20 minutes a day. Um, but one thing I used to do was I used to read the same book of the Bible every day, for a week. And I was hoping I read five days a week, so I read as many as five times. And so with like the epistles, it's super easy, but reading the same thing every day, over and over, five days in a row, 
the Lord really does show you a little bit more about the, the major themes and how to piece it together. And so I'd encourage everybody to read through the book of Acts every week as we, as we study this. And so <clears throat> the main theme of Acts is that we are going to be continuing, the church is going to be continuing the mission of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, until he comes again. And we're going to be successful. And so we are supposed to be a missional community, and we are supposed to be a witnessing community. And that's more than just evangelism. Uh, as I look around, there's quite a few people that are here because of our, our campus ministry, and we went table to table sharing the gospel. Not just a lot of you are here because we had a campus ministry, and you got a flyer, and you got invited, but many of you are here because we, somebody actually approached you, said, hey, do you want to talk about the gospel? Do you want to talk about the lifestyle of Christians or something? And so... Um, when Jesus gives his last command, we call this the Great Commission in Matthew 28. This should be in your outline. Um, when he says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so that's our mission. We are living in an age where that is a secondary or a tertiary idea or calling, so to speak, in the church, of where we're coming to get filled, we're coming to worship, we're coming for our own obligation, but rarely are we taught and discipled in a way of thinking is that we're coming as a missional community, we are one body, we need to be of one mind, have one goal together, and we need to be working together to reach the larger community. And we do that in evangelism, and we do that in a lot of other ways. Um, and so the process of making disciples is our life mission. That's everything that we're about. And the Bible gives us clear directives and patterns on how to do that. And so you'll see in your outline it says the paideia of God. Paideia is a, is a Greek word for instruction or teaching or a school or a way of thought. And that was used quite frequently in the, um, the Old Testament translation into Greek. But we see in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, Hear, O Israel, the Lord God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And that obviously correlates to Matthew 28 when he says, teach them to obey all that I have commanded. And so the paideia of God, we see that in the book of Ephesians when he says, uh, uh, raise up a child in the way he should go, instruct them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And so we're not just teaching on how to be obedient, or we're not just teaching on what Christians should do. We're teaching on a whole lifestyle of everything, how to make the, the Lord Jesus Lord of every area of your life. And so that includes how much salt you use in the kitchen and uh, whether you come to church on time and whether you volunteer on the church work day this Saturday. Just going to throw that out there. Uh, but it's how to, the paideia of God is how do we, and making disciples is how do we convert people 
And how do we teach people so that it becomes an entire way of life and of thinking, of submitting every aspect and every respect of our lives to the Lordship of Christ? And so uh, this is why we do catechism, and this is why we teach our kids, and this is why we encourage family worship and teach people how to do that. And so uh, it was, was it yesterday, maybe Friday, Noel and I were driving with Lily, and I was talking about some things I need to get done today. And Lily says, isn't that Sunday? I said, yeah. And I was trying to draw out like, what she meant. I, kinda, I knew what she meant. And she's like, well, we're not supposed to work on Sunday. I'm like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> and so we had an opportunity to talk about it, but that's in her way of thinking. We have recently been doing family worship where we're going through the book of Exodus, and we got through chapter 20. And so we're talking about the Ten Commandments a lot. And so we've been going over the Ten Commandments, and not just what they are, but what they mean, and how does that apply to our life. And so that was in her mind and her way of thinking at seven years old, right? And so that's supposed to flourish. That's supposed to grow. That's supposed to be how we disciple everybody. How do we take the law of God? How do we make that a way of thinking? How do we continually think about that? And that's essentially what discipleship is. And when Jesus says, teach them to obey all that I have commanded— well, you need to start by thinking about what Jesus commanded and how does that apply and how do we, in our given situation, how do we do that? And so the book of Acts is an encouragement that Jesus is going to fulfill that mission through his church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to disciple all the nations. And we're not going on a failing mission. And so if you're not learning how to be discipled, you can't make disciples. Does everybody get that? That's why we have small group discipleship groups. It's just the main point of them is teaching people how to be discipled. That's it. And that encompasses everything else that we talk about. And so, and so when Jesus says, wait until you receive power from on high, this is the mission of the entire church, to be witnesses in every, in every city, in every nation, to make disciples everywhere. And so, it's an encouragement. Jesus didn't send us on a failing mission. And so, Proverbs 19:21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but the purpose of the Lord, the purpose of the Lord, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And so, one of the things we see in the book of Acts is there's like 120 disciples, 120 faithful followers of Jesus. In the first chapter, Jesus had been crucified like 50 days before, and there was, um, you know, 1 Corinthians says that Jesus appeared resurrected to over 500, but only 120 of those actually did what Jesus said. And so, take that as it is. And, and so, but the purpose is, many are the plans of the mind of man, nobody really got it, like, Everybody was still thinking when Jesus was resurrected from the dead before he ascended that he's going to come like with a big sword and set up his throne in Jerusalem. And that's the question they ask when he's like, before Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem till you receive power. I think it's Peter that's asking, when, is, when, when are you going to restore the kingdom? And Jesus answers that question by saying, wait until you receive power and you'll be my witnesses for, in the whole earth. And so the longer version of the book of Acts, the title should be something like the ongoing mission of Jesus 
through the acts of the apostles, through the power of the Spirit, to establish the church and the kingdom of God. And so, um, most of the time, you know, especially in our current cultural climate, we start to think that things are getting worse and worse and worse, and we have this very pessimistic view, and there's some very relative things of why it may seem to be getting worse in our particular geographic area. But an encouragement from Proverbs 13:22 is, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. But this next part, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. And so we see throughout the whole, all the scriptures, there's a narrative of the people of God and the people of the world. And right after the fall, the people of the world are building quickly. They build cities really rapidly. And they also get destroyed really rapidly. But it's the people of God who are having this slow, consistent building. And the kingdom of God, through the people of God, is always growing where you see in the world that people are building nations and then they're falling down and then they're building these cultures and then they self-destruct. But the kingdom of God is just slowly overgrowing those. And so, <clears throat> so to kind of to recap, what we are doing is attempting to be a missional community where in every area of our life we're being witnesses and we're witnesses as we stand here and sing. We're witnesses as we go out and evangelize. We're uh, witnesses as we do family worship at home. We are always a witnessing community, whether we like it or not. And we're always witnessing to something. And so one of uh, Josiah's big verses that he quotes almost every time he's up here that I love is Ephesians 4.11. Is that... You know, when Christ ascended, he gave the apostles, prophets, shepherds, teachers, and evangelists to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so we will always be a missional community that, through the leadership, is empowering everybody else to do the work. And so we don't pay people to cut the grass. We don't pay people to do a lot of things that maybe people should get paid for if we wanted to outsource it. But... We're convicted by the scriptures and the Holy Spirit that we're a witnessing community. And what we're witnessing to is that we're going to be a restored community in fellowship with one another, serving one another, being a body with different members and different parts that serve in different capacities. And then we're going to start moving outward and taking over the city. And so we tell the long crews all the time, uh, they do a great job. David Furlow is in charge of that. He's a very mature young man. And we don't just put anybody in charge of that. We put someone who's going to get the job done because we really do believe that the first thing people see, which is the lawn, is a witness to how much we actually care about the Lordship of Christ. Amen. If Adam was given to tend a garden, we could cut the grass. <laughs> and what we do in this community says a lot about what we believe about Christ. That's why we don't outsource a lot of things to, to companies, except for like shoveling the snow, because I made the mistake of, of once not getting them to plow the snow. And we had 15 people here, 15 guys, everybody with a shovel, and it still took three hours. That was my mistake, and we'll never do that again. <laughs> so we pay, we pay for the plow. Um, but we are a witnessing community, and so one of the things that Jesus is saying when receive power from on high and then you'll be my witnesses is not just that you'll be my witnesses in evangelism and outward gospel proclamation, but how you guys live and how you guys interact with each other 
is going to be sometimes a bigger testimony than the outward proclamation of the gospel. And so um, most of you guys were here when we, uh, when we bought this church building and for maybe, I don't know, it was like a month or two, we had, you know, every couple of nights people coming here to work and volunteer to clean out the trash. To, I don't think we did any painting, but we did a lot of work around here to get the building ready. Uh, I remember uh, Robbie standing up on a very precarious setup that I made to get the really cheesy wallpaper banner off, the, uh, off there. And people came every couple of nights, and we always had dinner outside in the back, right? And we had tons of people walking the community and just asking, what are we doing? What's going on? Because what we do and how we interact and treat each other and how we live in community says something. We could have easily paid someone to come and clean this place out um, and get it ready. But that doesn't build community. That doesn't build work ethic. That doesn't build us as the body of Christ. And so we're committed to being a body where every member is used. Right? Paul gives us that analogy in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Romans chapter 12, where we're one body. But that is a witnessing statement. When we gather at the table and we proclaim the death of our Lord and his resurrection and his lordship and his ascension, and that we're united with him, and we're doing that together every week, that is a witness to the broader culture. And so <clears throat> that is who we are. That is what we're called to. Uh, that is Jesus' last statements in, in all of the Gospels, uh, and that is his first statement in, that we see in the book of Acts as it leads into this missional community, planting other churches to set up elders, overseers, to make more disciples, to plant more churches. And so with that, we'll actually get into chapter 3. And so the importance of a mission and evangelism, gospel boldness, public prayer. And so if you turn to chapter 3, it says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And so then they, uh, by the power of the Spirit, continue the same work of Jesus, heal the lame beggar. But I want to talk for a minute about what the heck were they doing at the temple? <laughs> Wouldn't you think that that was probably the most dangerous place to go? That was probably not the wisest place to go if you wanted to not cause problems. <laughs> if you wanted to not get heckled, if you wanted to uh, kind of have the people who uh, killed Jesus Christ over here and we can do our Christianity over here and we'll just, we'll grow in our marketing ways and we'll, you guys do your thing and we'll do our thing. They didn't really have that idea. They went to the temple to pray not because they were bound by some Jew, you know, Jewish religious law. It doesn't say exactly why, but if you go back to chapter 2, uh, verse 46, it says, And day by day, attending the temple together. And so they were regularly attending the temple, the very place where Jesus was, had been arrested, and they condemned him and sent him to Pilate. They were out. I think they were looking for trouble. They were... Uh, maybe they weren't looking for it, but they weren't afraid of it. And so uh, when they go to the temple, they surely were getting heckled. They surely were, they, I don't think they were just 
you know, praying like little monks and uh, put their hoods on and said, Lord, please just, I, I pray that you show them, show them love and uh, just use us, Lord. I don't think they were doing that. There's nothing that indicates that they were praying how we would normally think of our pietistic, self-centered uh, prayers that we often engage in today. The early Christians came from, a, obviously, a Jewish mindset, and they regularly prayed through the Psalms. And if you look at the Psalms, um, out of 150 Psalms, about 90 of them mention the struggle between the righteous and against their enemies. And so there's something called the imprecatory Psalms, which are Psalms that pray against your enemy. And so it doesn't say what they were praying. This is uh, my best knowledge that they must have been praying some imprecatory psalms because Matthew 24, Jesus leaves us. Uh, and at this time, I don't really know if there's a gap in what happens in Acts chapter 3 between the end of 2 and the day of Pentecost. And so, but in Acts chapter 3, when we heal, see this healing of the lame beggar, it's no more than six months. It's somewhere between six weeks and six months, but I have to do some more research to find out um, what the, if there was any more indications about an actual time frame. But you're, you're no more than six months away from when Jesus prophesied that this temple is going to be destroyed. And that's going to be the coming of a new age, of a gospel age, where this old covenant, this old system, is going to be torn down. And you're going to know that because there's not going to be a single stone left over. Not one stone will be left over, and this temple is getting destroyed. And so I think that the disciples were going there to, number one, evangelize, to pray, and to warn, just as Jesus did. He said the same thing to the Jews before they crucified him, that this temple is going to get destroyed, my wrath will come upon you, and there'll be a new covenant. And so, so Jesus prophesied this, and we'll get into that in the third part, where we talk about the time of restoration, <clears throat> But certainly the disciples would have been mocked, taunted, persecuted, and all sorts of things. And so we today tend to lose a gospel boldness of proclaiming the gospel and thinking that we have to kind of soften it for people to hear. But the healing of the lame beggar just opened up an opportunity for Peter and James to evangelize. And the, one of the first things he says is, repent. Um, and so uh, one of the things we do on and we're going to get ready to do is we're going to get prepared this summer and one thing I want everyone to have in their mind is RCF our, our Rock Campus Fellowship our Campus Fellowship uh, our ministry is sharing the gospel going out by teams uh, at the at Wright State UD and in our neighborhood and, and, and starting praying for that and getting ready for that but one thing that we notice as a campus ministry is what's very popular, and I always like to at least dog the ideas, not the people, of what, what most people are taught today is what's called the four spiritual laws. Have, have most people heard of the four spiritual laws or, or not? Well, maybe that's a good thing. Um, but it's a way of evangelizing. Uh, mostly on campus ministries is, is what groups use, is where it starts by God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. 
Well, the problem with that is sometimes uh, God has a wonderful plan for your life, and it starts with conviction and judgment. And by the grace of God, it leads to repentance. And so that's not how Peter and John start. They don't start by saying, I know you guys crucified him, and God really loves you. (laughs) And he's got a wonderful plan for you. If you would just muster onto a little bit of faith. He doesn't say that. He says, I know you guys, faith in this man, faith in Jesus Christ, the guy you crucified, you killed him. They don't say, he he really loves you. No, he says, you killed him. He doesn't, they don't back down. They don't start with, um, with God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. They start with gospel truths of that Jesus is the Lord. You must submit to him. You killed the author of life. You have to repent. You are far from God. You are very, very separated. And so if you want to look up the four spiritual laws, uh, you can be my guest and, and research that. But that's not how Peter starts. Peter starts with conviction, repentance. And so in verse 19 through 21, we read that he says, Repent therefore, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So I had in our scripture reading Isaiah 2, which is a prophecy about the latter days where the mountain of the house of the Lord will be raised up, that all nations will flow to it, and that many people shall come and say, teach us your ways. And so as a witnessing missional community, we should actively be thinking about how do we live in a way where people are going to see what we're doing, be impressed by it, and say, teach us your ways. And so, you know, we sometimes outsource ministries like counseling and things like that for people who need professional help. But we often, what we do in discipleship is essentially counseling. That's what, that's what counseling is, is discipleship. Teaching people to think more biblically-centered, gospel-centered, according to the law of God, how to submit to the lordship of Christ. You can call that discipleship. You can call that counseling if you want. If counseling makes you feel better, you can do that. If, you can, if discipleship makes you feel better, do that, whatever. And, but we should be a missional community, and that's what uh, the book of Acts is pointing at, is that people should be seeking us out. We should be living as a community in such a way that they say, oh my gosh, look at these people. They've got healthy marriages, they got healthy kids, they got healthy finances, they're healthy people, they're not laden with emotional struggles, they're not laden with all these other things, and uh, people come to them, and I knew who they were, and they were degenerates, and now that person's not quite a degenerate anymore, of which I'm probably one of those, one of the top ones. I'll testify to that. And so... We should be a missional community where we're discipling in such a way that people should be seeing what we're doing, right? Jesus says that as one of the first things in, after a Sermon on the Mound and the Beatitudes of you're the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its saltiness, it's not good for anything, throw it out. But you're the light of the world. You're a city set on a hill 
and a city can't be hidden, and a light can't be hidden. And so you don't hide your light under a basket, but you put the light on a stand so that everybody can see. And he qualifies that, and in case you're wondering, well, what does that mean? I don't know. Well, he says, let your good, therefore let your good works shine before others so that, so that they may see them and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And then you're like, well, what are the good works? I don't know. Well, he qualifies that too. Just keep reading. He says, there's not going to be an iota or anything removed from the law that isn't going to be fulfilled. He's not removing anything from the law. That's either not going to be fulfilled or enforced. And so what do we do? Well, we disciple according to the law of God. Start with the Ten Commandments. Read the following chapters in Exodus 21 to 24, where it explains a lot of them. Read Leviticus. Read Numbers. Especially read Deuteronomy. It'll tell you how to interpret them. And so that's what the time of restoration is. He says, Peter says, that there is, we are in the time of restoration where Jesus isn't coming back until all things are restored. And who's restoring them? The church, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're setting up missional communities, and that's what we're doing in India. That's what we're hoping to do in Singapore, is wherever the Lord brings us people, we want to prepare people to set up more churches as missional communities, as discipleship communities. That's why we're having Stephen Shepherd here from Church Planning International. He is a church planter. He plants churches. He does a great ministry in Peru and Uganda and some other South American countries. And so uh, when he comes on, on the 26th, I encourage your, if you decide to give to his ministry, he's doing an amazing ministry where he's doing that. And so be here on the 26th, another plug for him. And so just to make it clear that we are in these latter days and the church is called to this missional lifestyle, we're not waiting for things to get worse and then Jesus comes back and saves us and then, we can, then it can get better. He's here now. He's with us to the end of the age. I think I put these on your outlines. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he spoke to us by, to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Later in Hebrews 9.26, But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Again in Matthew 28. Verse 20, I'm with you till the end of the age. Acts 2, 17, Jesus, or, uh, Peter's first speech, first sermon. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And then later in Acts 2 he says, and these are those times. 1 Corinthians ten eleven. Now these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come, or end of the ages has come. <clears throat> and so these are the last days of the reign of Jesus Christ through his church empowered by the Holy Spirit to bring about restoration in the whole earth. And so everywhere where you see the gospel or Christians flourish in the church, the nation flourishes, the culture flourishes, people get more educated, the economy goes up, the, the, family, the family unit is restored, uh, relationships are restored. And so I kind of skipped over it um, a little bit, 
earlier, but one of the things he's doing and one of the reasons why we choose to be a, a church who is uh, based on volunteers and working together and trying to empower everybody else to do the work is, is because we're making a witness of if we were a church that just outsourced things, and I'm not saying that whatever other churches do, I'm just talking about us, is that says something. And that means we can't be unified in one mind, in one spirit, and we can't be one body. We'd be a disjointed body. And we, we will work tirelessly over and over throughout the years until we are what the Lord has called us to be. Until we're all missional, until we're all on board, until, until we are all mature. And as we get more people coming in, we'll work tirelessly for them. And we'll bring them on the mission. And that's why I'm excited about where our church is at because, because we have an opportunity to uh, align ourselves around that mission as we go through the book of Acts and press into our own families and how we operate in the church on how we can be that together. And so moving on to Deuteronomy, uh, we read Deuteronomy 6, 4 onward, talking about the paideia of God. Now Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 3 <clears throat> Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may, that you may fear the Lord your God and your sons and your sons' sons by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly." as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, that sounds awful reminiscent of what Jesus said in the Great Commission and what he said in the book of, at the beginning of Acts before he ascended is that obey the commandments, uh, go out into the land, and take the captives, right? Last time, two times I got up here, we talked about on, on Easter that Jesus proclaimed in the Transfiguration on the Mountain that he was about to make his exodus. And in the exodus, it wasn't just a flight from Egypt, it was a flight into the promised land. And Jesus identifies that as, as the whole world. And so we're to go out and make disciples of all nations. He gives us the, we can't do that except by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, I recently had an opportunity to talk with a missionary who's been a missionary in Bangladesh for the last 30 years and I was just kind of questioning about like what do they do like church planning or what's the there's a lot of missionaries that just go over for service projects and but they're attempting to plant churches and do things and he told me about one of his strategies is to uh, start these little small groups and uh, he'll give them a Bible and because they're in a foreign country and they're not as akin to Bibles. They think it's kind of cool. So they'll come just to, just to see the Bibles and whatnot. And, and, but one of the strategies was to, that, to get people who don't, aren't even Christians yet to lead these groups and share the gospel. <laughs> and they might grow in numbers, but people who aren't filled with the Spirit can't be witnesses to Christ. People who aren't filled with the Spirit convicted, made Christ their Lord, can't be witnesses accurately to Christ. 
And so that's why we work so hard at discipleship. That's why we work so hard at, at making sure that everybody is cared for, everybody is shepherded, everybody is, is being utilized and empowered in some way in our community to be useful. Because I think the scriptures are pretty direct that the, the work is for the saints. The ministry is for the saints. It's not for the leadership. It's not for some hierarchical, hierarchical um, um, setting. And so that's what our call is. That what we're, that's what we're going to be looking for and talking about more frequently in kind of the vision of our church. And I would encourage everybody to pray about that and think about that, about how you can be part of our missional community. What is your giftings and callings? Talk with a, a, one of the pastors or disciples about that and how you can be utilized, right? Um, I love my wife's giftingness and ministry because so often she invites ladies over to her house to teach them how to cook or teach them how to cook a dish or a meal, and then my ministry is eating it. And I am, I am just so grateful. And, but... But if she teaches you how to cook, you can serve and, and make dinner in our churches. We're currently low on volunteers to, uh, to do our Sunday meal prep, which is why we're doing the carry-in every six weeks. But we're not looking for people to volunteer specifically every four weeks and miss a whole service, but we're looking for people who are willing to serve and willing to be used as part of the team, right? One of, um, just in a in a micro view of that in our house for a while as as my youngest daughter Lily was maybe five six years old a couple years ago um, I really instilled into her we quoted from I think it's first Timothy whoever doesn't work doesn't eat and so every meal she had to either set the table or do something because she's part of the family when you serve and when, you, when you're part of the body, you're part of the body. When you utilize as a part of the body, you're part of the body. Just like in families, you either get, you know, moms and dads who are doing all the work and they get overran by the kids and the kids are yelling and screaming and, uh, and you know, it gets stressful when you're just having the parents do all the work. You put your kids to work, it makes it easier for you and there's not as much yelling. I love it. And so, um, as we look at our, as our call to the table today, I want to go back to uh, verse 19, where he says, Repent therefore and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. We see this elsewhere. If we turn to Psalm 50, I'm sorry, 51. Starting at verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And so this is that famous psalm where David was confronted by Nathan about his murder and adultery, uh, murder of Uzziah and adultery with Bathsheba. 
And the presence of the Lord doesn't come apart from repentance. And so, like I said last week, we don't believe that this bread and this wine literally transcribes into Jesus's or transforms into Jesus's body and blood. But Jesus said his body and his blood is present in the elements. And 1 Corinthians reminds us that we should uh, examine ourselves as we come to the table and that we should meditate on the death and resurrection of Christ. But this is more than just an empty symbol. And so we believe that as we come to the table, we really do receive grace. But it's not grace out of our own works that we did because we came to the table. The table is an invitation to receive grace. The table is an invitation to repent. The table is an invitation, as we're coming to Christ and the elements, to turn from your sin and come to Christ. And so... um, what I want to do is just take a minute and uh, take the command of, of Paul and to take a minute and examine yourselves. If there's besetting sins, if there's ongoing anxieties, if there's whatever it is, you can leave them here. You can receive grace. That's what the table is offering. But it has to come out of repentance. You have to turn. And so let's take a minute to uh, just examine ourselves and then we'll serve communion.